What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You're listening to Planet Purpose from Inc. Magazine. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we look at reigniting hope in America. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Planet Purpose. I'm Scott Goodson. And I'm Chip Walker. So I want to start with a story today, Um, Chip. I was walking down Fifth Avenue outside our offices of the Empire State Building, and I bumped into a CEO I know who said he was listening to our podcast, and he especially loved one of the hosts. And I thought he was talking about me, but it turns out he was talking about you. That's the story of my life. Uh, that's, that's hardly true. Uh, it's a lucky break for me, but it is good to know that, that I have fans now. I think uh, it, it's important to take a moment, at least for me, to thank all our listeners for tuning in each week and supporting our podcast. And for all the feedback and ideas we get, Please give us a review and a rating on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We genuinely appreciate it. Yeah, that'd be great. So the weather is getting a little cooler. Fall is in the air. It's that time of year. Time to receive our iPhones. Chip, you wanted to talk about Apple. Do you still love the brand? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I'm a big fan. Apple is also the company our guest worked at before Prudential. I don't think I knew that. That's very cool. Yeah. And getting back to Apple, it just came out with the iOS 15 and the new iPhone 13. Honestly, it feels like Apple, its movement is losing a little steam. I mean, the new 15 feels a lot like the 12, just more steel and glass for sale. No big changes. Apple feels just like another guilty pleasure purchase. Yeah, I, I think it's the 13, not the 15, but, but you're absolutely right. It's got a, a new camera on it. I think it's the major upgrade. Uh, and from what I hear, it's pretty amazing. You know, it's a decade since Tim Cook took over from Steve Jobs. In all transparency, I sold all my shares when Steve Jobs died. Fortunately, my wife bought them back and then some. (laughs) (laughs) It seems... Good idea. Yeah, I mean, and it's proven to be a a deft uh, decision. Uh, Tim Cook seems to be very good at generating profits. In the last quarter, revenues were up 35%. Yeah, it's really a remarkable company. But the question I have is, like, where is all the disruptive innovation? Where's the leadership on sustainability, at least? I mean, it seems like the company has hit a wall, or at least running out of gas, despite all the profits. I received the iPhone 13 the other day. I took it for a spin, and I'm wondering, like, where's the beef? I mean, I suppose the dynamics haven't changed since the fledgling company on the West Coast, to, you know, started their business. Actually, back years ago, when I was uh, working um, on Ericsson computers, I was at the Las Vegas Computer Show, and I was in a booth beside Steve Wozniak, and we actually became good friends. And uh, we're still in touch, and he, in fact, wrote the foreword to our recent book, Chip, Activate Brand Purpose. Ah, that's where that came from. I, I thought he was just like maybe another of my fans, uh, <laughs> yeah. or maybe just loved our writing. Maybe. Yeah. He well, he did actually <laughs> like he did like the writing, and you are in fact a uh, very very good writer. Um, but he did he did actually like the book. 
Looking at what's on offer now, uh, the new AirPods uh, are really great, but they cost $250. That's pretty impressive pricing power on the part of Apple. So I, I still think they got some juice left. Yeah, it's amazing. For me, uh, the question I have is how can Apple genuinely make big impacts in society? I mean, especially with such purchasing power, such authority. I mean, for instance, they feel like the only tech giant calling out the dangers of phones and social media. I mean, your iPhone will tell you when you're using it too much. That's the first time a tech firm is telling you there's something dangerous with its tool. But they could do a lot more, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's a real opportunity for some brand to launch a movement against excessive smartphone usage. I, I think parents in, in particular see it firsthand, uh, how iPhones are, are just basically addictive. And of course, now with the Facebook whistleblower, tech is going to be under the spotlight uh, like, like never before. I mean, it's really tough. I mean, I, I just know for myself, I sit at the dinner table and I, we have a rule at the house, nobody's on their phone, but it's so hard for my family members not to pull their phone out. Yeah. And you know, after a while of asking people to stop using the phone, you just stop, you know, and you just kind of accept that this is some new behavior that we have to accept. My dad would never have accepted it, but yeah. I don't know. It just feels like, you know, I'm pushing up against the waterfall. But anyway, Apple stands out for me on privacy, both by the path it's taken compared to other big tech firms and social media giants. Uh, but with all the dangers coming to light recently, I wonder why Apple isn't going a lot further. Yeah. I mean, they stake the higher purpose here, but don't you think there's an opportunity for them to help society and us and me and my family deal with the effects of technology? You know, I do, but they've always been kind of a, a strange brand like that in that it, it feels like they focus on product uh, and, and it's been successful for them. You know, that a lot of other companies go around sort of touting purpose and other stuff. I don't feel like Apple does it as much and they just stick to coming up with great products, which is, I think, one of the reasons whenever they have a, a, new, um, a new product, the way they launched the, the 13, if it's not really whiz-bang and incredible, people start to get disappointed because they don't talk about other stuff other than just how good their products are. They haven't really talked about purpose per se, but I think their stand in the privacy debate makes them feel like a purpose-based organization. And talking about higher purpose, one of the largest companies out there is Prudential, which also happens to be a purpose-driven company. And today we're going to be joined by a very special person, someone I've been watching in the business world for some time. Her name is Susan Somersill Johnson, and she is the chief marketing officer of Prudential. What I love about Susan is that she epitomizes what a purpose-driven leader should be in this world of ours. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to see if I can get this right, but I looked up to, to see um, about Prudential's purpose, and it, I believe it is to solve the financial challenges of our changing world. Uh, so Prudential is really about helping its customers achieve peace of mind and financial security. Ooh, I like that. I want to learn more, which we will do here today. Activate Brand Purpose is the new book focused on helping you lead with purpose. The insights in Activate Brand Purpose are supported by data from the first empirical study of purpose-driven brands. Activate Brand Purpose helps you do just that. It's available now on Audible. Everyone, please welcome Susan Somersill Johnson to our show. Woohoo! Welcome, Susan. It's great to have you. Yeah, welcome, Susan. Hi, Chip. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Talk about one of my favorite topics, purpose. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot to cover today, uh, and thank you for coming, Susan. Uh, but so let's, let's just jump straight in. Susan, for you, how do you think about purpose? What is purpose for you, and, and, and what does it mean to you? 
Purpose. Purpose is the North Star. It's the why. To me, it's, it's not just why you get up out of bed in the morning, but it's what keeps you moving forward. And it's always been a driver for me. So a little, a little bit about me, about my background. My family's from the Caribbean and my parents instilled purpose in me at a very young age. When my mother came here from Jamaica, she started with nothing. And she tells a vivid story. Um, she got here with a thin, a thin winter coat with a hole in the pocket and a thin dime, literally. So she started with nothing. And when you're, you're fighting for survival, I think your purpose is really clear. It becomes crystal clear, right? You just got to survive. Hmm. And uh, once she got on her feet, though, she worked incredibly hard to pay for her younger siblings to come here and for her education and for their education. So what it taught me, you asked me, Chip, about purpose, um, taught me to be the best you can be so you can help build your family, so you can help build your community, so that you can give back and, and make a stronger community. So that was a fire that got lit in me very early on, um, and it inspired me to get the best education possible. Uh, then I wanted to be an engineer, that, which is where I started my career at Apple. When I left Apple, I was a marketer, and then I wanted to have a family, and now I really just want to have a, a global impact and do everything that I can. So I encourage everybody to explore their purpose. I just think, I just think it's, it's critical for everybody. It's interesting. I, I was speaking with um, Ranjay Gulati and this gentleman who's the CEO of a company called Livongo, which is a, a compliance for a platform for diabetic children. Uh, well, actually, everyone with diabetes, but it started with children. And he created this company, which he ended up selling for $4 billion. But he only had one objective when he started, which was to help his son, who was a diabetic. So I find it fascinating that those that are highly purpose-driven have a personal, almost like a personal experience that has clicked inside of them. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously that your, the story of your mother and your family has such a great impact on you. But I just wanted to comment. I, felt, I feel like a lot of people, do you think people that are not purpose-driven haven't had the personal experience? You know, those of us who have found some sort of purpose or, or, or found some gratification in um, starting to live our purpose really want to help others find their purpose and dream big and do what they want to do and go where they want to go. So going from personal purpose to your where you're working at the moment as Chief Marketing Officer Prudential. Why is purpose so important for Prudential? I like to think purpose is important for every company, not just Prudential, but for everyone, hmm. you know, whether you're in government, a company, and groups or individuals. For us, um, as a purpose-driven company, we're trying to do everything we can to move people forward. Hmm. Um, and that means getting a really tight pulse on the country and, and what people need. And right now, we've obviously done a lot of research about this. And right now, it's tough for people. You can't live your purpose when you're not on stable ground, when you're on shaky ground. It's tough to dream big. It's tough to live your purpose, especially during these uncertain times. You know, two in three Americans is anxious about their financial futures. So um, in order to fulfill our purpose, we want to help people dream big again. So we are doing everything we can to reignite hope. That's where we're going right now is to reignite hope hmm. when a lot of people still have despair. I think we can all agree that once you are on solid ground, on stable ground, you know, that's when you can take off again, when you can dream big. And we're, we're trying to help people get there in every way that we can. Interesting. Interesting. So is that why you brought The Rock back to your to your advertising campaign? I know, know you guys have recently started some, uh, some new uh, creative. Uh, and it, it looked like you 
featured the rock and it, it was uh, kind of portraying that solid ground you were just talking about. That's it. That's it. That's our iconic symbol, the prudential rock, and it symbolizes strength and resi resilience. So we bought it back, but we bought it back to celebrate the real rocks in our lives. So the people that we can rely on no matter what, we all have one or some if we're lucky. I know I do. For me, it's my husband. Hmm. Uh, but when you think about those people, those rocks in your lives, you know, just think about Think about one that's yours right now. We all have them, right? It inspires you just to think about that person who's your rock. So, so mm. that's why we bought the rock back. And yes, for the first time in the decade, it is a centerpiece of our advertising. So we have not used the rock in a decade in our advertising. Wow! And we bought it back as a symbol of strength to help people move forward. Yeah, amazing. So, okay, I got a random question for you, uh, Chip and Scott. How old do you think the rock is? Wow, I. I don't know, 100 years old? Okay, again, close. Chip? Uh, yeah, that's, I was going to say probably 100 years old, I bet. It is the fifth oldest company logo in the United States, and we used it for the first time in advertising in 1896. <laughs> wow. wow. Amazing. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, it was clearly one of the brands that stood out for me uh, when I was, you know, back in the 60s. Definitely remember the Prudential Rock and... The advertising back then, but wow, I didn't realize it was that old. I remember the song, Get a Piece of the Rock. Yeah. There you go. There you go. And uh, and so that's still true for people, for kids today, Scott. Wow. It's um, so in some of advertising, we're, fe we're featuring uh, children and, um, and they were aware of the rocks. So we're seeing that it still resonates for people of across ages, which is pretty amazing um, that people still know what the rock stands for. So, so the rock is back. Uh, we're featuring it again, and we just want to help people move forward and get on that stable ground, which I think I think we all we all need right now. We're all feeling a little unstable with everything that's going on. Yeah, I feel like you can't, you know, just basic human psychology. You really can't move forward without security or stability. If you're fearful, if you, you know, are paralyzed by worry, you, you know, you're just so limited in what you're able to do, both from a mental and health perspective. So from a basic psychological perspective, humans need that stability. So I really, really love how you're connecting those two at this time. Yeah. I often ask people who's the rock in your life, because when you think of people who are achieving amazing things in this world, there's always somebody behind them, whether mm. it's an aunt or a grandparent or some of the community. There's always, it's fascinating to see the rocks that people rely on. Um, and I don't know that you can move forward without it completely alone. Hmm. I wonder what your husband is going to say when he hears this podcast. That's going to make him smile. <laughs> 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 That's great. I know my wife, she's certainly the rock of my life. So I can relate to that. And that gives you the um, confidence to do what you want to do, right? And try new things. Absolutely. That lets me be a little more fearless, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in this world, you know, with this kind of volatility, uncertainty, change on, you know, all around us, right? It's every moment is just completely unexpected. We don't know what's going to happen. Everything is just topsy-turvy. I mean, who would have thought we'd be here? We are, you know, two years into the pandemic, no end in sight. <laughs> just absolutely crazy, you know, compared to where we were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Just, I mean, it's... Everything just seems so crazy. So I think the idea of a stable rock just feels really exactly on culture and on where 
people are, you know, even from a, especially from a financial perspective, because finance is such an emotional topic. You know, money is, is do you agree, Chip? I mean, you've worked with so yeah. many different financial brands. Yeah, no, it, it, money is hugely emotional. I mean, that, that's mm. one of the issues is that pe people aren't always rational about it. Mm. It, uh, you know, your, your pocketbook is something that's very close to most people's hearts. As a marketer, um, so, you know, I spent most of my career in technology marketing in the tech industry around the world, um, but now I'm in financial services. So I have this debate a lot that you're talking about is emotional, is financial services, is, should marketing be emotional? And of course, you know, all, all the research will tell you it's still emotional. People think that finances are very logical, straightforward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. So we debate about it all the time, but people get highly emotional about finances. So it's important to um, to think about hearts and minds when you're considering uh, financial advice. So we talked about like getting people to solid ground. How does Prudential actually make that happen? It sounds a bit like corporate speak. Can you give us some tangible examples? Tan tangible examples. Sure, Scott. So the first thing we wanted to do was help reignite hope. Hmm. So that, that's what I was talking about. That, that's where we want to start for individual people, for communities. Hmm. And to do that, we needed something that people can relate to, regardless of who you are, where you are, your differences. We wanted to reach people in vehicles that transcend differences. Hmm. So what is that? That for us is the arts and sports. So that's where we started. That That's where we wanted to connect to people. Those are transcendent. That's great. Yeah. So we launched at the Olympics, um, at the Summer Olympics in Tokyo, which is, of course, a symbol of hope around the world. Mm. And I think the world, the whole world was hoping the Olympics to go ahead, right? Willing it to go forward mm. so that we could see forward momentum. You talked about earlier end in sight so that you could see that the world was still moving. And so it went ahead, as you know, um, and back to purpose, the individual purpose of each athlete really came to life. You know, as I watched just the magnificence of the, of, of the athletes competing. So it was a huge cultural moment, mm. uh, you know, relevant to everyone, whether you're eight, 38 or 88, mm. right? Just a quintessential example of achieving your highest potential. So we thought that that was ideal. It was, it was ideal for us to bring back the rock that symbol of resilience to help that helps people move forward. So, um, so that was the vehicle that we used for our launch. And then we learned that there were six new sports this year. Um, there were six new sports in the Olympics. Uh, you want to take a guess what they are? Two of two of them, my favorite two sports that I love, but there were six that debuted um, this year in the Olympics. Any idea? I don't know. I think it was skateboarding was one. Yeah, skateboarding. Yeah. Um, and so like maybe surfing, surfing or something? Or no. Uh, you, you didn't know. Yeah, surfing. That's one of my favorites. Uh, so karate and surfing, my favorite. Skateboarding, baseball, softball. Oh, baseball. Yeah, I remember that. And rock climbing. Oh. So we sponsored the U.S. rock climbing team. That's the great. U.S. climbing team. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Oh, my gosh. The way they fly from rock to rock. It's Amazing. incredible to watch. Yeah. The, the way that we looked at it, we wanted to help support the next generation of athletes. So our sponsorship goes towards training and travel for international competitions and, and the sponsorship continues. So we're, we're trying to elevate the team's presence around the world, but um, uh, through grit and hard work, you may have seen that Nathaniel Coleman, Nicole Silver. I used to, uh, I went skiing just before the pandemic in Italy with an Italian 
uh, Olympic rock climber. He was taking us off pist. We were skiing like off the off the tracks and going into the mountains. And this guy was definitely <laughs> definitely a different level of human being than I am. Uh, so I can relate to the cl- the climbers. Was that so, when you when you skinned up your arm? Yeah, you? that was when I fell and almost completely flew off a two mile cliff down to the bottom of the valley. It was kind of interesting. You know, I I fell and he was kind of just smirking at me like, "What are you doing?" And my kids, which who are with me, came down and said, "Dad, like, can you hurry up? We want to go out for lunch. Just get up, you know." And I'm sitting there. But anyway, I digress. It's fascinating the whole. I get the climbing mindset, so that was really amazing to sponsor that. The four members of the climbing team, um, they came to speak to us at a town hall and so inspiring, you know, Olympic athletes to listen to their stories. What struck me was the number of times they used the word stress and stressful. Mm. So you just think like they train harder than they do it, but they talked about the grit that it takes day after day and think about how many times you fall. Mm. Falling, you know, they fall more than they climb. Yeah. And then, and the, just the stress of the competitions and the travel, and um, but they wow. pushed through. So, so to me, you know, just on our theme of reigniting hope, that they inspire us to do mm. that and to just keep keep moving through. Incredible athlete. Talk about reigniting hope. I mean, I I think this was literally perhaps one of the first Olympics that projected a more humane image. And what I mean by that is, you know, in the past it was primarily about you know, athletic performance and supremacy. But this time, you know, with Simone Biles, you saw that there was actually human beings there that were caring for themselves and their own mental well-being. So I I think the idea of being involved with the Olympics was brilliant because it was, for me, endearing and it just opened up a, a relationship with the Olympics that I hadn't had before. I thought about myself and about other people who I know and this whole idea of mental well-being in a way that I never had as a result of, you know, her story and what she did, which was so brave. Yeah, we saw, we used to see the um, athletes as superhuman. Now we know they're human. They're just yeah. exceptional. Right. And uh, Simone Biles highlighting mental health issues that, that impact everyone, everyone uh, on this earth, um, I think really helped humanize them and help us relate. Totally. And another way that we try to do that is to show the rocks in their lives. They also need people. Mm. They need rocks. They need support. Um, they need support networks, they need communities, and um, we can all relate to that. And then after the Olympics, I believe you also made a big stand for Broadway, right? There's, I mean, the city here in New York City, you know, for those that aren't living here can imagine the city has a such a large community of actors and actresses and music and producers, many of which have been out of work for so long here. It's been devastating to the individuals and the families and, of course, the community. And they just recently restarted Broadway. And yeah. I believe Prudential was instrumental in, in helping bring Broadway back. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We um, After the success of the Olympics, we wanted to do more. We wanted to help. And Broadway was on the verge of the comeback. They were dark. It was dark for 18 months. Mm. And so we said, how can we help? Just for background, on March 12, 2020, all 41 shows shut down. Incredible. And Broadway and off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway, right? Yeah. Think about um, high school theater. Yeah. So that affects everyone. If you think of the breadth of it, not just actors, mm. stagehands, ushers, makeup artists. Wow. The um, When we looked at the numbers, the new in New York alone, the cultural sector employs almost 300,000 people. Wow. And delivers $110 billion in economic value. Wow. So 
just an incredible cultural engine, cultural core, but also an economic engine. Mm. So as a financial service organization, we said, how can we help? It's a huge cultural moment. And there's something that everybody can relate to in Broadway or off Broadway or high school theater. So we said we want to be a part of it, but we just didn't want to put our name on it. We wanted to help. Hmm. So we partnered with Playbill and we put our resources behind making it successful um, by way of a three day. We sponsored a three day free festival in Times Square. And I got to tell you, and a lot of the shows performed, it was magic. Hmm. I mean, just to see everybody able to be together again, one place for free, accessible to everybody to get people back to the shows, to see the shows. It it was so energizing, Scott. And uh, the performers, the performers, they were so, the emotion, Mm. you could feel the emotion. Just think about it, being closed for 18 months and you can't do what you want to do. So then being a financial services organization, we wanted to help financially as well, help the theater community. So we gave donations to the Black Theater Coalition and to the Actors Fund. And we created a financial wellness site with advisors to help people get more solid footing. It was what we could do to help. And there's so much more that we want to do. <laughs> but I got to tell a little side story because I have a colleague in Brazil who told me um, as we were, were doing this, she said, Susan, Times Square and Broadway do not belong to New York. They belong to the world. Mm. She lives in Brazil. Mm. And this is a cultural moment for the entire world, Susan. I think she's absolutely right. Because then we saw broadcasts from around the world um, mm. surrounding it. But don't tell any New Yorkers that are listening right now. <laughs> but it's true. I agree with her. I mean, it's definitely a beacon of hope, right? Like everyone knows Broadway and when the lights are out, it's just a message of despair. And, you know, I know personally people on Broadway and it has been super difficult. So I agree hundred percent coming back. What a beacon of hope um, and a message for everyone that, that you know, maybe not a hundred percent through, but, but on the way. Yeah. Uh, During the Tony Awards, they did clips from around the world of theater productions of Broadway shows all the way around the world Mm. and uh, different people in different languages. It's definitely a a global phenomenon. Incredible. And a bit of a rock in people's lives, right? Like from a cultural perspective, having that is just such an inspiration, right? I mean, just incredible. Yeah. People go to shows when they're not feeling so good, right? They need to pick me up. Exactly. Yeah. So, Susan, so you guys have gone into sports with the Olympics. You've uh, kind of pushed into culture with Broadway. But um, what about some of the big issues? Um, You know, I think companies are increasingly kind of expected to to not just do things that are commercial, but actually have a point of view and and to do things that are taking on some of the important uh, big issues of the day. Um, How how about that for Prudential? What, What are you guys thinking about in terms of bigger issues? Thank you for going there, Chip. 2020 was transformative in so many ways. And the social protest sparked by the murder of George Floyd caused us all to take a much more urgent look at racial equity, I would say. So for us at Prudential, we've always been active in this area, but now we are laser focused and we have made nine commitments to racial equity to have long lasting impact. I would say we have a heightened sense of urgency. So, so look, this is something that's very important to me personally as, as a Black woman and a professional. So before I came to Prudential, I did my homework, I did my research, and our commitments are real, and we impact our local communi- communities, and we're embedded deep into our local communities, which is really important to me personally. Um, so, it's Newark, right? 
Newark, exactly. Newark, Newark is our headquarters. Absolutely. So we've been there almost 150 years and achieving racial equity is embedded in the DNA of the company. But being based in Newark, we stayed rooted there throughout the years and we helped throughout several societal moments. In 1967, there were racial protests in Newark. And when many companies were considering leaving, we dug in, we dug in our roots, and we helped support and we invested. And we continue to do that to this day. So more recently, in the last 10 years, we have invested over $1 billion in Newark, in the community, in the arts, Hmm. and school programs. It's very, very important to us. And most recently, something that really makes it real, we tied senior executive pay to tangible diversity goals. Wow, that's great. Making, yeah, making making it real. So I I think also what's important to us is transparency. So we released, which I'm, I'm really proud of us, we released our pay equity and diversity metrics. I think that this helps make sure that a company stands by its purpose and stands by its promise when you have that kind of transparency and you just put it all out there. So we're doing what we can to move this forward. But I would say we have a renewed sense of urgency like many people in this country. It's such an important issue. And the fact that, you know, the transparency you know, I think people are waiting today for people to, or companies to not do what they say they're going to do. You know, a lot of people talk about it. So that's extraordinary. We've talked about your personal life. We talked about, you know, what Prudential is doing, uh, the platforms that you have invested in, the actions you're taking in a whole range of areas. As a leader, I mean, you've been a leader in the business community uh, for many years. What sort of style do you need at the top? in 2021, 2022, you know, what do you need it to be a great leader these days? And how do you align your, your teams around your purpose? I think it's such an important question because, so I study leadership, Hmm. I study leadership and psychology because I think they're intertwined, Hmm. how to motivate positive behaviors that enrich people and fulfill people. And I think it starts with setting ambitious goals so that we're all mo- moving forward together to some mm. based in purpose. And the way I think about it, if you're working with a purpose-driven company, or it could just be your own company, your own organization, or just your family, but if you have some purpose, then you have to take a step back. What I do, you take a step back and you say, okay, what is our responsibility to the mm. world, to people, to individuals? What do we have to do if we're, if we're claiming to be purpose-driven. And that makes you think of wild and crazy things you thought were impossible. So you set that as a goal and then you build an inclusive team to to do it. I think inclusive leadership is so important. The best teams are those with different skills and different different types of people, different strengths. Uh, I learned that in a number of ways, but one was I worked in Finland for a long time. Hmm. I was often not only the only black woman in the room. I mean, that happens often. I'm the only woman or the only black woman, but I was most times the only American in the room. (laughs) So I had amazing conversations and discussions and conflicts and debates with people from around the world, different cultures, different, different thoughts, different perspectives. And I truly appreciated not just diversity, but inclusion, Mm. feeling like 
one of the group feeling that people admire what you have to bring to the table. So I try to build that in teams. And, and that is hard work, I find, because when we're different, when you encounter people that are different, your natural defenses come up. So you need to talk, you need to communicate and, and connect. And that's how you build great teams when you understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and, and you work through and around them and together. That's how you build a strong team. That's how you build an inclusive team that can do anything. You know, when you bring people together, different backgrounds or skills or even ways at solving problems, how do you overcome conflicts that you would typically have in a group that, you know, is more, you know, not so different? Time. I know that's not an easy answer, but spending time with each other, I think, is the most important thing. I like to quote Brian Stevenson, who said that uh, proximity is the main thing. Mm. So if you don't have proximity to any issue or any topic, if you're not aware of it, familiar with it, you don't know people who struggle Mm. with it. If you don't have, and he was talking about um, the criminal justice system, if you don't have proximity, you're not going to care enough to help. You're not going to care enough to get into that debate with your colleague, to struggle through it, to work through it, because it's not easy. So, um, to gain proximity, you have to spend time with each other and people who don't look like you and people that are different. And, and, and Scott, I think that's the way that you get to real unity. Well, that's, that's interesting because it's something I've wondered about. Do you think Zoom counts as, as proximity? Sometimes I wonder, and I kind of feel like maybe it, it, it isn't. <laughs> it's not the same as being together, you know? <laughs> but I don't know. What, what do you think? So I've been remote. You know, I started uh, late last year with Prudential, so fairly new here. (laughs) So met most people remotely. And I've had the pleasure of meeting a handful of people face-to-face now. And I can tell you, Zoom counts, remote counts, because uh, it's surreal, no doubt, meeting someone who you've only seen on Zoom for a year. (laughs) So it's surreal, but um, it's just a continuing of the relationship. And I I built some really strong relationships, 100% on Zoom. So so mm. Chip, I would say it's real. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I'm I'm happy to hear that since uh, Zoom is the, just the reality that, that that we got right now for for a lot of this. But at any rate, Susan, this has been such a great episode. Thank you so much for for all this perspective on the things you guys are doing, why purpose matters to you, and and what I really appreciated was just that you're you're not just talking about it. You guys are actually doing stuff that that's tangible out in the world. We are now going to take a pause for a quick break, and then we'll be back for our jump ball segment. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Now it's time for Jump Ball, our recommendation section where we give ideas, uh, new shows, books, or whatever we've come across to make your lives more fun. And today, why don't we kick this off with you, Susan? What do you have for us? Oh, I got I got one for you, Scott. It's a new book published just this year, and it's a keeper. The Business of Race, oh. How to Create and Sustain an Anti-Racist Workplace, oh, wow. and Why It's Actually Good for Business. Yeah. Wow, that's mm. great. And it's a fascinating story behind it. Two really smart, really savvy businesswomen, Margaret Greenberg and Gina Greenlee, one white woman and one black woman. They met years ago in the workplace. They became fast friends. And then last year, 
Um, they decided uh, they wanted to use their business experience and do something about racial equity to advance it. Mm. So they interviewed a, a number of executives and wrote an incredible roadmap. It's really practical. It's a, a roadmap for how to build a truly equitable environment. I think it's, you talk about purpose on the show. I think it's a must read for leaders who want to build purpose-driven companies. Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm definitely going to put that on my reading list. Thank you. That's great. Chip, you have something inspiring as usual. Um, usually a TV show. What do you have this week? Yeah, I, I do. Well, you know, usually I have some kind of nerdy book to, to recommend. Um, and I did read uh, a couple nerdy books this week, but I was really struck, though, by something um, that's a little bit more mindless, which, you know, we could always use a little entertainment. This is a film uh, I watched on HBO Max. Uh, a friend recommended it to me. And it's hard for me to know if I recommend this or not, but let, let me just tell you about it. It's called Malignant. It's mm. a horror film. Okay. <laughs> and um, it's by uh, the director James Wan, who's uh, really well known in that genre. He directed all the Saw movies and the first Conjuring film. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I, I'm a horror junkie. I love horror films. But it's about a woman who begins to have visions of people being murdered, uh, only to realize that the events are, are actually happening in real life. So it's kind of surreal. What's interesting about it is that it's he seems to have intentionally written and shot it like a 1980s B-horror film. Hmm. Only you can tell it's got a huge budget. Uh, and it has a plot twist at the end that is one of the most outrageous, outlandish things I've ever seen in a movie in, in my life. Uh, it, it's sort of so bad that it's good <laughs> sort of thing. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's probably not for everybody, but uh, but it, it, it's certainly different. Let's put it that way. Interesting. Interesting. I'll put that one on. Actually, I'm not a big horror uh, fan, so I don't know if I'll watch that. I have seen it advertised, um, and I kind of glossed over it. How about you, Scott? This week, I have a show actually on Netflix that I think you introduced me to, Chip, called Brand New Cherry Flavor. Oh, Yeah. yeah. That's a wild one. It's a bit like a Salvador Dali dark comedy. Kind of grabs you right from the beginning and doesn't, doesn't let go. Um, it's not scary or anything. It's, uh, it just doesn't make any sense, but it completely keeps you glued to the plot lines to figure out what's going on. Um, it's kind of a kinder, gentler David Cronenberg kind of culty classic kind of uh, show. Anyway, it's definitely a bit of a ride down the rabbit hole. Uh, and I watched, I think, the whole series. I think there's like eight or ten shows in, in like one and a half days <laughs> straight. So, wonderful. Well, thanks for tuning into Planet Purpose. And a very, very warm thank you to Susan Somersill Johnson. Scott, Chip, thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. A lot of fun. Thank you, Susan, for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Planet Purpose. I'm Scott Goodson. And I'm Chip Walker. Planet Purpose is brought to you by Ink Magazine and Strawberry Frog. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like the show, please leave us a rating or a review. This show would not be possible without the extraordinary support and help of Avery Miles, producer, Brian Cornelius, video producer, Josh Christensen, senior podcast producer, Blake Odom, production assistant, Umama Mahood, marketing director, and Nicola Keneally, chief of staff. <laughs>